Welcome everyone and thanks for joining us for the next installment of the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hofberg, and joining us today we have a very special guest coming to us from the Veterans Treatment Courts system, and I'm here with Joseph Ellis. Uh, welcome, Joseph. Thank you. Thank you for asking me to be on. I appreciate the, the opportunity. Great. So as you got, as you know, we're pretty informal around here. Is it, also, is it okay if I call you Joe for the podcast? Um, actually, I, I prefer Joseph. I, I was Joe in another life and, and uh, took on the name Joseph when I, when I went through uh, treatment myself. And so it represents kind of a new beginning for me. So I, I kind of prefer Joseph. I know it sounds formal and, and I get kind of uh, taken aback when people <laughs> call me Joe now because I'm like, oh, we're familiar. But, uh, but I prefer Joseph. I think uh, you know, that's kind of the, the persona I'm with now. Great, great. So Joseph, welcome. Um, I think that's a great segue into just telling us a little bit about yourself and um, how you came to arrive in this uh, line of work. Well, it's kind of a long story. Do you have some time? I <laughs> yep, we, we got time. Sit back. Um, uh, I'm relaxed. I'm ready. I'm. You know, I've, I've lived. I feel like I've lived a couple different lives. In another life, I was uh, I was a graphic designer. Um, I worked for a subsidiary of Hallmark. Um, out of Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas, um, and that was kind of a, a, a cool gig. I loved it. Um, I got a lot of exposure to the marketing world. My, uh, I have a master's degree in marketing and advertising, um, and so that was another life and, and kind of led me into, uh, that, that's where I kind of uh, began to struggle with my own uh, demons, I guess, battle with uh, some depression, you know, some major depression. Um, and I, the thing about it is I, I had no idea what was going on. You know, I, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know that that's not what normal life looked like. And so kind of, um, fumbled my way into, uh, what they call substance use disorder or, or addiction. You know, the, the, the word addiction is kind of frowned upon. We try to use different, uh, terminology now that's not so, um, demeaning, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I, I kind of fell into my battle with depression. Um, I started having some, some physical pain issues uh, come up. And um, growing up, I was kind of a teetotaler. Uh, didn't, didn't really drink, didn't really uh, experiment with drugs, and um, actually got some weird sideways looks uh, in certain circles. You know, they're like, you don't drink, you don't, you don't, you don't smoke or anything like that. And I'm, I'm, you know, I, was, I was fine to say I didn't. Um, and then started having some physical pain issues, um, sought some help. And of course, uh, this was back before what we come to know as the opioid crisis and was, was prescribed medications. Um, and I, uh, I think it really evolved into um, using those medications to more uh, deal with the emotional issues that I was having uh, rather than the, the physical pain. You know, I think the two were related, the physical and the emotional. Um, but I found that, you know, the, the medication I was given for physical pain helped me tolerate my in-laws better, helped me, helped me tolerate work, <laughs> right. uh, mm-hmm. conflict, uh, helped me not feel some of the symptoms of depression. Um, and then it kind of evolved, you know, from, you know, as it does through dependency uh, into addiction, uh, where it really disrupts life. Um, and so I systematically kind of 
handed my life over in in all facets to to using to using opiates, um, and then, uh, like I said, systematically started losing all the good things in my life. I had a, everything I wanted at, at about the age of 25. Had a beautiful family, um, you know, w- was married to a good woman. Um, I worked for great companies like like Hallmark Cards and Remington Arms, uh, doing really really cool things, um, but you know, all that stuff didn't really come to be actualized because I, f- I fell into depression and, and substance use. Um, so, uh, it, it was a real, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dante's Inferno, but you know, I went, I went through the different rings of hell, mm-hmm. you know, and, and denial and a lot of the cognitive distortions that I had that were reinforced by my military service in the army. Um, they they just helped me to fall uh, fall more and more um, to a place I I never realized that uh, that I could go. Mm. Um, so it got pretty dark, you know. Um, I went from having you know great jobs, a wife, and you know four beautiful kids that are that are the best of me, um, to systematically handing everything over to this to this disorder, um, and. <laughs> living on a, on a mattress in my dad's basement um, and really uh, contemplating for the first time um, ending it all as a solution to this problem, you know. Um, and that's somewhere that I never never thought I could go. Um, so it was, uh, it was this realization that I had to make a choice, you know. I, 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 hate, to, I hate to quote movies too much anymore, but there's a line from Shawshank Redemption that that uh, states, you know, get busy living or get busy dying, mm. and and that's kind of where I was at. I was like, man, I have, I feel like I have two choices. I'm at a crossroads. You know, it's either um, continue dying physically, emotionally, and spiritually, or or try to find what life's on the other side of this. So um, I came to Colorado, went to uh, a pretty pretty hardcore treatment center called Stouts Free Foundation. Um, and it saved my life. It really, really helped me to uncover um, some of the, the the thinking and the behavior that really helped me get into um, this dark place. You know, it helped me uncover things and realize that uh, my thinking was the problem. You know, that, that caused the, the heavy-duty feelings that I was dealing with. And out of that came um, behaviors that I never thought I would engage in. Um, and so uh, going through treatment helped me realize again um, who I was, helped me get back to uh, the good things that I like about my character, about myself, you know, my strengths. Um, and so it helped me to kind of, uh, it was kind of a crawl, walk, run kind of a deal. It's a long-term program. Um, it's 24 months. There's 18 months in-house residential treatment where you go through um, a period of orientation for 30 days and then and then you get into um, first phase where you're um, exposed to these different psychoeducational classes um, and groups that they call reality therapy games that really, um, really, really delve into, you know, I, I, it helped me to realize that I was my biggest problem and that I was the solution to my own problem. Um, and that's, that's the level of treatment that I needed. I had gone through different episodes and, and uh, of treatment and it didn't, it didn't take, 
it didn't uh, it didn't help. So it was really the the tidal wave of truth that I needed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I was desperate. I grabbed onto it, latched onto it, um, ran with it, uh, tried to do everything I could to to make myself better. Um, and that engagement, which you know now being a certified addictions counselor, um, helped me to realize. You know, one of the things I've I've noticed is that one of the biggest predictors of whether or not you're going to stay in long-term recovery um, or relapse and go back to that life is is your willingness to do whatever it takes to change. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was. So um, I, I grabbed onto everything that would feed me. You know, I was, I was hungry for all this stuff. So these psycho, psychoeducational classes are set up in a way that um, they kind of build on each other. They teach you coping skills. You know, they teach you how to um, deal with anger management, you know, they teach you how to deal with um, your your maladaptive schemas, which is a big word for um, essentially looking at the world through a certain set of distorted glasses that you have, realizing where it came from, and, and then um, taking that and f- flipping it 180 degrees and, and, and going to what I call the super balance. I actually teach that class now um, because it, it that was my spiritual awakening, if you will. That was where I kind of realized that, you know, I, I, have, the, I have, have the power and have had the power um, the whole time, my whole life, to, to live the life that I deserve. And so now it's my passion to kind of teach that to other folks and um, hopefully, hopefully afford them that same spiritual awakening. Um, so I, I, you know, I went through treatment um i was able to to get gainful employment again um and and started growing this network of of friends in recovery of people who who were also living a life you know of of not using and and finding their best life and and like i said that hunger really hasn't gone anywhere it's just grown Mm. you know um it's kind of like a snowball going downhill you know the the bigger it gets, the more momentum it, it builds, and um, and so one of the biggest things I've learned is that I can't I can't have a big enough network, um, you know, and and so uh, going through that, I was uh, I was working I was working in the addictions field, um, actually working for Stout Street Foundation on their business development side, um, and then uh, was afforded the opportunity to, be, to become a mentor um, in the 18th Judicial District in Arapahoe County. Um, and it was kind of there. I was doing addictions counseling um, at Stout Street, but it, w- it was there, and it was that door opening that I realized, hey, there's an entire microcosm of, of folks out there, of veterans that are, that are dealing with substance use disorder in conjunction with their, their mental health stuff and their trauma um, from the military that, that need the same things that I needed. Um, and so worked with a couple mentees out there, um, you know, some real, some real hard headed dudes that, that I was able to relate with because I was that hard headed dude, you know, and, and when I was telling them, uh, things that I thought were pearls of wisdom, I was talking to myself at the same time, you know? Um, and so, um, working there, I, I was there for a couple years, um, under the tutelage of Todd Kramer. Um, he's the he's the peer mentor coordinator out there, 
Um, same thing that I do in the first judicial district. Um, uh, the state sort of realized, hey, this is a this is a need. This mentor program is huge. Um, it's really helping folks in the process um, of recovery of getting back to the life that they deserve. Um, this mentor program is really a key portion of it, you know. And veterans treatment court is is the only one of these problem solving courts that we have. Um, that affords folks mentors, you know, and, and uh, the role of a mentor is essentially, um, I say, walking next to somebody as they go through this. Right. Just being there, uh-huh. you know. Um, we educate, you know, we empower, um, and, and we keep these guys on the right track, you know. We just let them know, hey, I'm here. I'm not, I'm not in front of you pulling you along. I'm not behind you pushing you. I'm standing right beside you, just like just like we did in the military, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, whatever happens to you happens to me. We're going to walk through it. And so, it's that companionship I think that that really makes the the veterans treatment courts um, successful. I was able to uh, travel to Buffalo, where the first veterans treatment court uh, was started there, and uh, meet some of those guys, uh, Jack O'Connor, who was really the first. The first guy who really did what we do, you know, um, and and he kind of pioneered this system that that has had you know great success. And so I was able to travel out there and uh, talk to Jack and go through some training with them, um, sit through their court and see you know how Judge Russell uh, keeps things keeps things going. They've been going for uh, around ten years now, and wow. it's yeah, and it. I mean, what we do here in Colorado, they do on a much, much larger scale. Um, on a typical docket day um, in our world, you know, we'll see maybe 8 to 10 clients. You know, on a heavy day, it gets, you know, around the 18, 20 range. But uh, I was sitting in court, and they let the, the vets in for, for their court in Buffalo, and this line of, of former service members just walked through and I, there must have been 30, 35, maybe 40 people just filed through. And I was just, they just filled up the courtroom and I was like blown away. So, so they do what we do on a much, much larger scale. They've, they've, they've refined it and they are refining it. And so we, we, I try to stay in touch with Jack as much as I can and um, kind of see what they're doing um, and try to emulate that here. Well, I really want to dive into that some more in just a moment, but you know, first I, I just wanted to thank you for sharing your story as part of this because, um, as you mentioned, you know, you're you're beside these these guys and, and you you have been there in many ways, and so I, I really appreciate uh, that and for you coming in today. Um, as we uh, get into the topic a little bit more, I just want to make sure that folks are familiar with a little bit more about what the idea behind veterans treatment courts are and then we can talk a little bit more as you were mentioning about what the the flow looks like and and how you all are are modeling your program uh... sounds like somewhat off of buffalo uh, so could you start us uh, just kind of at the beginning uh... you said uh, maybe the first veterans treatment court was about a decade ago what was the goal here and and how is it, how is it set up uh... it's it's uh, it's I want to say offshoot. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, it's it's an offshoot of drug courts, which have been around for for quite a while. Um, I don't want to misspeak and say it, you know a certain number of years, years sure. but they've been around a lot longer than Veterans Treatment Court. Um, but it's essentially 
you know, they, they've recognized that, that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of veterans in the U.S. Um, they, they come back home, you know, they have a, a problem uh, assimilating back to, back to life in the civilian world um, because the military is great at teaching us how to be in the military, but not so much uh, teaching us how to not be in the military anymore. You know, the things that they teach us in the military, um, they, they help you to excel and exceed and do well in the military lifestyle. Um, but then when you come home and you're a civilian again, those things don't necessarily fit. You know, it's like a square peg in a round hole. You're, you're kind of, you're trying to figure out, you know, why isn't everybody else's life structured like mine? Why, you know, why can't they toe the line? What, you know, uh, the things I've taught help me succeed. Um, and you try to put those into the civilian world and it doesn't necessarily fit. So, um, it's that, uh, I've kind of rattled off and forgotten veterans treatment court. You want to, you want to talk about the structure of it? Yeah. So like, it's very helpful to think that this is modeled off sort of a drug treatment court where, you know, I guess the goal is to keep people out of jail, right? I mean, yeah. for some, to some extent. Right, right. And that's, yeah, thanks for leading me back there, man. I'm, I'm old and had a lot of blows to the head. You know, <laughs> no, but it's, it's good to think of all that background. So I actually am. Uh, um, you know, this they recognize that there's a cycle of guys coming home that cannot, you know, can't assimilate and, and they get into, they get into legal, legal trouble, you know, mm -hmm. because they're, uh, because it, it's mostly because of their, their mental health stuff that they're dealing with because of their service. Um, you know, things of that nature that, that are hindering them, but they don't even realize it kind of like my story. Um, they get in trouble with the, with the justice system and then, and then the cycle just continues, you know, and incarceration doesn't, incarceration is not a treatment, you know, it doesn't really treat the problem. It's not getting to the root of it. It's kind of perpetuating it. So, you know, sometimes these, these folks, they, they come home and they get in trouble and, and, and it's like this cycle that they don't know how to get out of. Um, I heard one judge talk about, um, how you do, uh, you do life in life in jail 30 days at a time. Um, mm. you know, which kind of, you know, helped me to kind of understand wow, that this, the cycle just perpetuates yeah. itself. And so, you know, there's a, there's a teaching and treatment need there, but, but keeping these guys in incarceration, um, or, or DOC community corrections is not helping the problem. Right. Um, a lot of times people just learn how to be better, better criminals, you know, which is, it's not helping the problem. So to get to the, to the root of the issue, it's, it's, um, it's an opportunity to identify what these guys are struggling with, you know, uh, what these, I say guys, I, I apologize, what these folks are struggling with, um, because we have, we have men and women in the courts the same, you know, um, trauma, trauma is a huge one. Um, you, you know, you, in the military, in your in the in the scope of your service, you see things that that civilians couldn't couldn't understand, couldn't couldn't imagine sometimes, you know. Um, and trying to uh, that's got that play, that's got to go somewhere, you know. That that stuff needs to be dealt with, or it just uh, it just festers. Um, and so, it it feeds the mental health issues, you know. So getting them the treatment that they need, get them, giving them the opportunity to, to deal with those, those demons. Uh, I'm doing air quotes, but you know, getting them to deal with the, the, the issues, 
um, at the root level helps them to get out of this cycle. You know, and so that's what that's what drug courts, that's what veteran treatment court is all about. Um, specifying, uh, I mean, the difference between a drug court and the veterans treatment court is 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 just the the treatment is specifically for veterans. It's vet specific treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's um, getting them connected to the VA if they if they have the the right status, the right discharge status. Um, it's it's finding the resources in the community um, that they can plug into. Um, if their discharge status, you know, keeps them from going to the VA. Um, and that's, that's when I talked about not being able to have a big enough network, that's one of the things that, that, um, that I try to focus on is, is staying hungry for the next, the next piece of information, um, trying to meet the next, the next person that can lead me to the next chunk of information. Um, you know, this is, um, there's a huge network of, uh, uh, just a spider web of resources out there, people that want to help. Mm-hmm. I think the last uh, statistic I heard on one of my favorite podcasts, Mandatory Fun, was that there's 45,000 uh, and and counting um, different nonprofits that are vet specific uh, right now, and it, and then they just keep going, they just keep growing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many out there that it's impossible to keep up with them, and so. And finding those relevant resources that are that are near and around us um, is kind of the, um, I guess, the little puzzle that I like to put together. You know, um, it's it's integral to getting these guys the treatment that they need, these folks the, the treatment that they need, um, especially if they're cut off from the VA or or if there's a delay in their treatment with the VA um, and they might be in a in a position of crisis or or they might need help now. You know. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that um, in our court where um, they might have an appointment in the next three weeks uh, to deal with a specific issue, but they need help now. You know, they're, they're going through the same thing I was. They're thinking about, you know, uh, they're thinking about really permanent solutions to temporary problems that they, they don't even need to consider. Right. Um, and it's, you know, part of the cognitive distortion that I said was reinforced through the military is, is that... Um, sacrifice for the greater good piece you know put it away deal with it later um you know strength is strength is uh, barreling through something um depriving yourself of sleep if need be um you don't eat until everybody else eats kind of thing and um you know these are these are basic needs that we have as human beings but you know in the military the mentality is you sacrifice for the greater good and that's all well and good until you get out into the civilian world and, and it's just you, you know. And, and then you, you know, you, you may have a, a complete lack of uh, knowledge about self-care, how to take care of yourself because you're so used to, you know, making sure all your troops are fed before you eat. Mm-hmm. Um, pushing through and pushing through and pushing through um, and denying what your basic needs are um, to the point where, you don't know how to feed yourself. You don't know how to, and I say feed, but I don't just mean literally. literally. Right. I mean figuratively. About feed the soul. Feed yeah. The body, feed, feed yourself emotionally, physically, spiritually. Mm-hmm. You know, these are these are huge things. Um, the military is great on teaching you how to take care of yourself. You know, doing your PT and staying at that uh, top level of uh, performance physically. But I don't ever, I don't ever remember a, a commander, a platoon sergeant ever telling me. Hey, make sure you take care of yourself. Make sure you have your, you have your your me time. You know, 
make sure that uh, make sure you do some mindfulness or you know some grounding or whatever you need to do to take care of of you because you really can't you really can't take care of your troops well if you're not good you know I don't ever remember that being taught maybe it is now maybe things are evolving and I and that's my hope sure uh, but I in my experience that was not the case you know yeah that's that's really some tremendous insight into like you said, getting at some of these root cause type things and, and how challenging uh, the transition out of the military can be. And so um, could you talk us through, you know, you mentioned kind of the veterans that are getting uh, into the Veterans Treatment Court. What kind of uh, things are they going through? What kind of issues are they facing? And, what you know, what kind of cases are you all seeing? Well, um, a lot of the folks that we see aren't, uh, they're, not, they're not folks that are, like, immediately transitioning out transitioning out of their out of their service um, whether it's active duty reserve guard whatever it is they're not these are folks one of the things I've noticed is that there's years of lag time hmm. between their their separation from the military and and then when we find them you know because I, I think that mentality of of suck it up and drive on keeps them from reaching out for the help that they need sooner rather than later, you know, and it finally gets to a point where they're in trouble with the law and the consequences have become so great that they have to face these things. That's kind of what, what I've noticed um, in our courts. You know, some of the guys have been separated. Some of the folks have been separated four or five, maybe 10 years, maybe even Vietnam era, um, you know, and, and, and they've been trying to deal with these things on their own for so long that it's become this this giant monster that's just you know, overtaking them and they, they're forced to deal with it when they land in the justice system. So, um, you know, there's everything from, uh, people having their first DUI to, um, much greater, much greater, uh, heavier charges, um, you know, uh, felony level stuff, um, that, that probably never should have happened had these folks had the treatment that they needed along the way. And reached out for it, mm-hmm. you know that 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 pride piece, and I can do it myself piece. Um, I think is what is causing that lag time between their separation and when we see them in the courts. Yeah. So. So now. Um, Talk, you know, you mentioned your your peer mentor. What does that role look like? And, and tell us a little bit about it. And maybe, you know, um, I feel like it, it's so helpful sometimes when we bring it to something specific while also respecting 100% confidentiality and people's privacy. But is there an opportunity here to tell us a little bit about how you act as a peer mentor and, you know, what that role looks like in, in, the, in every day? Sure. I, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the term battle buddy. Um, you know, everybody, you don't do anything alone in the military. They train you, you know, uh, in basic training. If you're going to, if you're going to go to the latrine, you take your battle buddy, you know, and you just get used to counting on that person beside you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that person's got your back and you've got their back, you know, whether you have, uh, personal issues with them or not, they, they're on the same team as you. And so, um, it's, it's essentially like that, you know, um, at a fundamental level, it's essentially being their battle buddy. Um, it's 
like I said, the companionship piece is the is the biggest is the biggest part. Um, we're focusing a lot on on training and and getting them involved uh, in peer recovery coaching. Um, you know, higher level. Um, I guess you'd say recognized and certified training um, as sort of a standard. But at the end of the day, that companionship is the biggest piece. You know, just being there. Uh, you know, I'm a vet. I, I see that you're struggling. I'm your battle buddy. What you're going through, I'm going through, and, and I'm going to stand beside you until we get on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so does that kind of flesh yeah, out? Yeah, that actually is really helpful. And I wonder, if is that some of the same language you'll do when you're introducing yourself to these guys and, and gals when you meet them? Yeah, absolutely. We, You know, I, it, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of difficult actually, you know, you know, I talked about that lag time and people, uh, between separation and when they find themselves in the courts, uh, they, you know, they've kind of become accustomed in that, in that time to, to taking care of things on their own. So a lot of times there's this, um, almost an aversion to the, to the peer mentor role. You know, we have about 10, uh, really active peer mentors in our court. And these are folks that are there every week. And we, we end up pairing them up um, individually, like one-on-one. Um, and, and I've noticed that, that um, folks in our court will really almost have to be forced into, into realizing that this is a person they can trust, a person that's there to help. Um, there's this trust, trust factor that has to be gained, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and a lot of times it's just, it starts with that relational piece, you know, introducing them. Getting them used to, uh, you know, maybe sending a text every every couple of days and saying, "How are you? You good? Is there anything I can do for you?" Um, just letting them know, "Hey, I'm here." You know, right? It's, uh, and you mentioned like part of it is you're connected to this network of resources and you're help kind of bridging some of the gaps in terms of sort of helping find the resources that are relevant for that person. Right. Absolutely. And that's that's part of what my role is as a peer mentor coordinator is. Um, making sure that that I'm on top of uh, my game when it comes to resources that are relevant around us and being able to communicate those to my mentors, which, um, you know, I kind of look at as, as my, my platoon, my squad, my my people. Ah, uh, I see. So you're the coordinator for the other mentors. Right. I, okay, right. that's helpful, that's helpful. Yeah, and so I'm responsible for, for training them, for um, for retaining them and helping them uh, make sure that they have all the all the tools that they deemed in their toolkit uh, to be successful and to feel like they're doing something beneficial because these mentors aren't paid. They're volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, they yeah. do it out of the goodness of their heart because they have a heart for other vets. Um, and so, um, you know, obviously they're going to run into trouble with them, with, you know, throughout their process. Um, you know, they're going to struggle. Uh, with knowing what's the right thing to do, but at the end of the day, we got to make sure that they know. You just be there, just be there. If you don't have a solution, that's fine. Just let them know I'm here and you're being heard. But part of my role as a as a peer mentor coordinator that I that I take very seriously is making sure that I know the resources that are available and relevant, um, and then I educate the the mentors on that, and so that they have this uh, they have a, a good firm understanding of what's out there. So that they can, I guess, feel like confident in, in that they can speak knowledgeably about these resources. So mm-hmm. I want to make sure that they know all the resources that I know. 
Um, and if they don't, they know they can come to me and I can, I can say, hey, maybe this will help. Maybe this will help. Maybe we should connect them with, with uh, Stephen A. Cohen Clinic, you know. Sure. Um, and so just keeping on top of those resources, that's a huge part of it. Because, you know, like I talked to you before we started recording, 98% of the resources that are out there, and I just pulled that number out because it helps me visualize the vast number of resources that are out there, um, they don't know about. They know about right. the VA. Um, you know, a lot of these guys have run into uh, problems connecting with the VA because of their discharge status. And so they assume, well, there's no resources. If the VA is not available, then there's no resources. And so us knowing about the veteran service organizations in our area that can help, the services that they provide, um, all the nonprofits that are out there, um, you know, us being able to know about that helps us to, to bridge the gap and, and help them get help right away. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess it's a great opportunity to say uh, we're happy to be part of your snowball too. And, you know, um, one of the services that we provide is a suicide risk management consultation that's free to any provider who serves veterans. And uh, peers are included in that uh, category of folks who serve veterans. And so um, if there are uh, opportunities here for us to be part of your network of resources for your peers to consult and uh, potentially uh, get support around a, a suicide risk management, uh, we'd be happy to you know connect you with that resource as well. That's awesome. I I appreciate that, and I you know I think um, having that again having you in our network is a fantastic piece because um, it's it's. You know, the difference between somebody being in crisis, and I think that's probably the worst case scenario mm-hmm. um, that, that we could uh, train and prepare a mentor for, you know, and I've had mentors tell me that's, that's my biggest fear is that somebody comes to me and they're, they're at that point. Um, so, so knowing that you guys are out there, um, th- you know, there's a difference between having a 1-800 number for a crisis line that they can call and not knowing who's on the other end of the call or, or the text line that they have. Um, there's a difference between that and, and seeing a face, knowing a name. Um, and so that's huge. That's mm-hmm. a huge piece, and mm-hmm. we appreciate that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I did want to touch on one of the things you mentioned, which was that this uh, peer uh, program is, is volunteers. I, I had... In some reason, in my mind, I had imagined that, you know, this was sort of a, a paid job. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the model of this system and how it's funded and, you know, sort of how you all sustain yourself. Sure. And then, you know, that's a, it's a fantastic thing and, and it's sort of a um, protection piece, I feel, on, on my end is that I, I can't tell these mentors how much we appreciate the fact that they volunteer their time, their energy and, and their Yeah, that's um, that's incredible. Their so hearts selfless. Yeah. I, I it's to me it's overwhelming, you know, so I try to take every advantage, take every opportunity I have to tell them how much we appreciate them. Um, because I you know, I can't pay them. If I could I would, you know, there's um it, it's amazing to me. It really is. You know, and and I guess, you know, having been a mentor myself, I, I see you know, the reward is payment in itself. When you see somebody succeed and take that next step, um, that next step in their personal growth, um, that's rewarding enough in in and of itself. Um, But it would be fantastic if, you know, the state provided 
um, and they're and they're working. They're they're growing. Uh, they're growing that piece. We uh, we actually uh, have the funding for um, contract uh, contract work as peer mentors, um, and so we're kind of breaking into that area, um, of having some funds and being able to to compensate somebody for their uh, connecting the dots between you know somebody getting out of jail and not knowing what to do to being able to. Uh, have somebody on hand that you can call day or night and say, look, this guy needs a ride. He's got to get to a safe place. Um, can you do this? And, and they're like, sure. You know, and, and you're able to say and know that, hey, they're compensated for this. You know, they're going above and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yes, but there's compensation for it. So I hope that piece grows uh, because right now a big hearty smile and a thanks and a hug is about all I can offer. Um, besides the, you know, the us breaking into the contract piece. So hopefully right. that that's something that grows. And, and I commend the state for um, recognizing the need there and, mm-hmm. and moving some funding towards it. Um, it's it's um, I think it's it's growing in the right direction. Sure. Yeah. And you mentioned that there's been some prior work in Buffalo and obviously also this idea that like each court system is a little bit unique and and kind of has their own way of, of doing this you, could you say a little bit more about that sure there's uh, you know there there are districts around uh, the major areas of the state um, that are doing this and and there's been a lot of uh, autonomy you know some some of the districts in the state have been around longer than others um, so they They've worked through it. They, you know, they have more, uh, I guess, what you call boots on the ground experience with it. You know, mm-hmm. they've they've bumped their heads. They've they've grown in the right direction. They've figured out what to do, what not to do. Um, you know, and, and looking to the looking to the 18th has been a, a huge part of uh, what we've done in the first. You know, the first has been around for I think going on around five years. Okay. Um, and then uh, the 18th has been around. I, I don't know. I'm not absolutely 100% sure so I don't want to say but I know that they've been around longer than that okay. um, and so there's kind of this autonomy that's existed existed you know for as long as these courts have been around um, and, and we're 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 doing our best to collaborate and to to unify that statewide you know um, that autonomy has led to some great things you know in the springs they have um, they have a lot more funding they, they they've uh, they're doing a lot of work with Operation TBI, um, and and they, you know, they're able they're able to stretch out in areas that that we may not be able to. But looking to what they're doing helps us to uh, sort of emulate that in our districts as best we can. Um, so unifying this has been a big initiative. Uh, Mike Burtis uh, has come on down at the the state level um, at SCAO, and and he's, you know, all all of this collaboration has been. Uh, sort of pushed at for a long time, but I think we're making we're making ground that we haven't been able to make in mm-hmm. the past. So, um, so that autonomy is good because different areas have different needs and different different uh, requirements and things that work, um, you know, and and all that stuff needs to be taken into account. Uh, but having, you know, having some unified uh, training for the mentors, you know, recognizing. Hey, we've been around this long. We've seen that this training might be most helpful. Um, what do you guys think about doing that? How do we best disseminate that training and get everybody involved with it? Um, what do you guys do that works in this area? What hasn't worked? That kind of collaboration is kind of 
um, what I, from what I've seen, I think it's, it's helping us to make some great strides. Excellent. Yeah, it's really exciting to, to hear, honestly, how far you all have come from the first uh, or early on, starting maybe a decade ago, to now, you know, this really collaborative network building um, within Colorado. So I'm excited to, to see where it goes next. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I really, I, I got to say, um, you know, I've dropped a couple names of, of folks that are really um, leading, the, uh, leading the initiatives, but um, some of the other peer mentor coordinators that I, um, I want to mention, Jennifer Smith, um, she's down in, in Colorado. She's uh, kind of new to the position. Uh, Brian Arndt, he's in the, the Denver area. Um, Scott Hefty works in the Lakewood area. Um, and I think they're a municipal court, um, so we're trying to we're trying to loop that in because he's been around for quite a while. Um, obviously, uh, Todd in the 18th, um, Darnell, uh, who's Darnell O'Hare, um, she's uh, in Adams County, and and so I'm sure there are names that I'm forgetting, and I apologize, mm-hmm. but but these are the folks that that we've regularly kind of gotten together and regularly picked each other's brains and. Um, look out, you know, look out for opportunities to say, hey, I just found this resource. It's working really well. You guys might want to hang on to this. Um, you know, having that kind of collaboration and, and, and having Mike come on at the state level and be able to be kind of a, a central hub for that and us getting together, is, is, it's exciting to me, you know, because I really do feel like, you know, we're, we're more powerful together. We all appreciate our ability to be autonomous and have our own flavors and styles, but um, at the end of the day, building this thing to be sustainable is what we're about. You know, we want this to to continue growing and to continue being effective. And um, and that team that team approach, I think, is is going to get us miles beyond where we would get kind of operating our own little insulated bubbles. Yeah, so. yeah, Joseph, I can really feel this. Uh... This momentum building. This is this is really exciting time to uh, to hear about your work. Um, as we start to kind of wind down, I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of um, share either a story or a lesson or any you know any parting uh, words. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess uh, what I've realized is that that um, you know change change doesn't happen overnight, and that's kind of what we're. That's kind of what we're about. That's at that's at the at the base level what we're about in Veterans Treatment Court is helping folks realize change, you know, and helping them realize that it's time for change, you know, and 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 so it's a process. It's not a, a switch that's flipped, you know. It's not a doorway that you walk through and um, it's magically fixed. And a lot of us, you know, in American society, we want that because we're all about that instant gratification and pizza delivery in five minutes, um, and it's. You know, it's not, it's not, it's the journey, I think, from getting to, from point A to to point D that really strengthens recovery and the change that we're looking for when we're talking about um, recovery from mental health and recovery from substance use disorder. Um, and so having that patience, you know, having that patience and and the continued um, desire to to help, you know, the genuine desire to help. I think is is what I see from everybody I've worked with in the veterans treatment court, you know. And at the end of the day, we're about helping these helping these folks, you know, helping these fellow service members. Um, it's about really 
helping serve those who have who have served, you know. Um, and I, I just feel like I don't know. This is probably the most passionate I've ever I've ever been about about anything anything I've ever been paid to do. Um, and so it's a really rewarding really rewarding thing. Um, and I would encourage anybody who wants to get involved to reach out to me. Um, I'm available and can be reached through the Jefferson County website. Um, I'd be glad to give out my phone number. I don't know if you want to do that mm-hmm. on the podcast. Sure, we can absolutely leave it in the in the notes with the podcast and make sure folks can get sure, in touch with you. Sure, and definitely. email and, and whatever, it, whatever means possible. Um, I think I want to be available to, to grow my network and to expand um, the level of help that we're we're getting here and uh, I, one of the things I forgot to mention is that we have a uh, we have a, a veteran pod in Jefferson County in the in the detention center. Oh, okay. And so um, Chief Rob Reardon has been kind of spearheaded that initiative, and that's uh, kind of a model that we're we're looking at as as far as you know we get to go in there every 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 week every Tuesday after court. Um, I go in with the veteran justice officer, the VJO Nathan Vuitton, and and the probation officer in the first uh, Jennifer Lockyer, um, and these guys are are key to what we do too. You know, there's the judicial side of things, and then there's the probation side of things, and then there's the VA side of things. But when we come together, we go into the to the pod, and and we realize that uh, there are folks that may not be um, they may not be appropriate for veterans treatment court, but but they're veterans and they have needs and we know resources. And so mm-hmm. we just want to help. We just want to help vets, you know, mm-hmm. well, we want to help everybody, but we have a, you know, a definite passion and a heart for, for helping others who have served. And, and so, um, just, just keeping that, uh, uh, that, that will to help others, you know, um, yeah. that's kind of what we're about. When we raise our hand and, and take that oath, you know, we, we put our lives on the line. We write a blank check, you know, and um, I don't think that's something that 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 devotion is something that that goes away when you ETS, you know. It's uh, it's something that continues, and so um, I would encourage anybody who wants to get involved to to reach out to me. Um, and if I'm not the right person, I'll I'll get you in touch with the right person. But um, it really is a collective thing, and and we always need help. You know, we always need to grow our network, and so um, so reach out and and. Help us serve those who have served. Excellent. Yeah, that's so uh, very hard at the center, you know, to help and, help and serve others who have served. So I really appreciate that passion behind your work. And uh, if there was any veteran, you know, who potentially may be struggling or going through something who is listening today, uh, are there any, any words, you know, to them? Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would say that, you know, you're... You're better than that. You have worth. You have you have uh, innate worth as a human being. Um, you know, taking that taking that step um, into suicide is a is a permanent solution to a lot of times temporary problems, problems that can be handled, problems that you know, there's help for. Um, and and drop the pride, drop the pride and reach out. You know, and and. I guarantee you, on the other side of, of all that fear that you have, um, there's a life that you probably never imagined, you know. So reach out. Drop the pride. Reach out. Get some help. Um, and realize that, that that's a very permanent solution to a lot of times temporary problems. 
well said. And as Joseph mentioned, we'll, we'll absolutely include his contact information. So that is a very real reach out. There is a person here. And, and Joseph, I can, I'm in the room with him. You know, there is some real passion there. And so if, if you reach out to him, we will make sure you get connected to whatever, whatever service you need. Absolutely. Um, great. Well, again, thanks so much, Joseph, for joining us today and, and driving through here in the, in the snowy winter day here in Colorado. Uh, we really appreciate your time. And um, listeners, if you have any comments, feedback, questions, um, just reactions to today's podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, be sure to give us a review and uh, let some colleagues know if you, if you like what you hear to share it with them. Um, until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in veterans' mental health, resilience, suicide prevention, and well-being. Take care, everybody. Take care.